Please open your Bibles with me to the Song of Solomon, chapter 1, Song of Solomon. It's just past halfway in your Bible. If you open in the middle, you'll probably hit Psalms and then Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Last Sunday night, I began a new sermon series, which will work through this book, and I laid a lot of groundwork, a lot of preliminary introductory notes. I won't rehash all of that, but by way of brief review, I thought it would be good to give a little bit of introduction. And if you have further questions, I'd encourage you back to last week's sermon, which is online. But as we noted last week, this book is lyrical poetry. It is a song. In fact, as verse 1 of chapter 1 says, it is the song of songs. It's the best of the songs. Just like Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and like the Holy of holies was the holiest of all places, this is the song of songs. It's the best of the best. And it's not merely poetry, it's romantic poetry. It's written by Solomon, and it's about the love between a beloved woman, the betrothed bride-to-be, and her kingly suitor. But although it's certainly romantic poetry, we shouldn't read it merely as poetry. Israel is pictured in many places in the Old Testament as being the bride of Yahweh. The, the Lord chose Israel as His bride. Indeed, in the New Testament, Paul picks up the same idea, and he says that marriage, human marriage, points us to a spiritual reality, and that is Christ is the bridegroom, and the church is His bride. The Lord has wed us to Himself, and in that way, He stands as the model of what faithful husbands are to be, and the exemplar of what true love ought to look like. And so while this book certainly should teach us what marriage should look like, what love here ought to look like, it should teach us even more than that. It's profitable, even for those who are not yet married. It's profitable for those that are no longer married. It shows us what true love ought to be, and, and in that love we see more clearly the faithful bridegroom, the true King of kings, Jesus Christ. Let's begin by reading from chapter 1. I'll begin at the beginning of verse 1 and read through verse 10. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O oh, most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. 
Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, and your neck is a string of jewels. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to see in this text that feels so distant the very face of our beloved bridegroom. Help us to see more clearly who we are, not merely as those who have missed the mark and have sinned, but those that have trusted in the great bridegroom and have been made white. Help us to see our Savior, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. I preached 1 through 4, or the first half of verse 4 last week, and so our text, our section of text this morning comes right after verse 4, which contains a praise from the female companions of the bride-to-be, the daughters of Jerusalem. These women uh, were probably background singers when this song was originally sung. They might point us even to the heavenly court, to the angelic hosts in heaven, who delight in the love between Christ and His bride, but we know for sure here that they serve to confirm the woman's opinion of her beloved. Poetically, this group of women is validating the woman's appraisal of her king. Yes, indeed, the king's love really is better than wine. He is lovely. His love is refreshing to the heart and the soul. And thus far in the poem, there are no problems between the two lovers. There's no enmity. There's no rift. There's no strife. The only, the only problem is that they're not married yet. She is anticipating. She's joyful. She's excited. She's ready. She's rejoicing. And then, and then verse 5 comes. We get a taste that something is not quite right. The bride has concerns, and her concerns center around two different things. Her appearance and her reputation. Her appearance and her reputation. Look at verse 5. What does she say about herself? She says, I am very dark. And indeed, verse 6, do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. You see, unlike today where having tanned skin is sometimes prized by women, back in Solomon's day it was the opposite. To have dark skin meant that you were a common laborer. You, were, you had to work outside for a living. If we were in India, we would say you were from a lower caste. You were beneath. You were of inferior blood. You were beneath those who were able to retain an unblemished and pale complexion. And so we read from her words how her appearance gives her concern. In fact, she feels ashamed. Don't, don't look at me. Don't let your eyes land Upon me, I'm black like the tents of Kedar, she says, which are made from dark animal skin. I'm like those black tents we see outside covered in dark goat skins that hang in the sun all day. I'm dark like the curtains of Solomon in the temple, which are woven so tightly no light gets let through. Don't, don't, don't look at me. The sun has gazed upon me, and because of that, you shouldn't gaze at me. Have you ever felt this kind of shame? Shame because of how you look, how you think your appearance is in the eyes of others. It's not difficult to imagine how she feels. She's betrothed to a king. And yet she's not of royal lineage. She's in love with someone who's beautiful 
and handsome, but she feels unlovely herself. If we, if we take a little artistic license here, follow the language from the beginning of verse 4, the woman is ready to run with the king into the king's chambers, but she, she wants to make sure the lights are off and the curtains are drawn. She doesn't want him to see who she really is, what she really looks like, because she feels unlovely. I wonder if you can relate to such a feeling. But how, how did she come to this condition? Let's keep reading. How did she get this feeling? She says, my mother's sons, verse 6, were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards. Notice she doesn't say her brothers were angry with her. It's her mother's sons. She, she's distancing herself from them. Those people over there, those sons of my mother, they made me this way. They were angry with me, and they made me work out in the, the fields. God's people have often been the victims of mistreatment, even by those close to them, even by family. Think Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his own brothers. Indeed, at one level, the church has always felt this kind of mistreatment. We are born brothers and sisters, sons of Adam by nature. We are brothers and sisters with everyone in the whole world. We all have Eve as our mother, and it's our mother's sons outside of the church that despise the church. The church is shameful in the eyes of the world. They hate the church. They mock the church. They can't see the glory of Christ, and they hate the light, as John says in his gospel, because in the light their dark deeds are exposed, and so they love the darkness. They hate the light, and so they malign the church. They cast her out. They say, get out of here. They marginalize her. They try and snuff her out. Get out in the vineyard and work, you slave. Perhaps you personally can resonate with the bride in this story. She's been bullied and mistreated. She's been devalued and marginalized. But notice, notice too, though, she doesn't place all the blame on the sons of her mother. She admits her own flaws. She says, My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. She's aware of her own misdeeds. She hasn't kept her own vineyard. Vineyard, which is a theme used throughout this book, is often in their day a euphemism for sexuality, especially in women. And so she's saying, my own sins are clear to me. She can't blame everything on her brothers. Her own transgressions are there. She's guilty and she knows it. She, she could say with the psalmist, my sins are ever before me. I am dark. Don't look at me. I'm ashamed. I see my sin. I feel unlovely. I bear the scars of my own transgressions in my body, and I don't want anyone to see them. Her appearance makes her feel worthy of shame. But it's, it's not only her appearance that makes her feel this way. She's also concerned with her reputation, her, her standing in the community. 
What will people think of me? Look at verse 7. Tell me whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? You see, she wants to be with her king, her shepherd king. She wants to be with her beloved, but she's got concerns about her appearance in the eyes of the community. Why should I be like one who veils herself? That's, that's loaded language. Those of you that know your Old Testament well, remember Genesis 38 with Judah and Tamar. And Tamar veiled herself and stood along the roadside. She was intentionally dressing up like a religious harlot. And the veil was a primary piece of that outfit. And so the woman here is concerned. She wants to find her shepherd king. But the kind of women who might be mingling among shepherds and along the roads, those aren't the kind of women of good repute. So rather than me just wandering around looking like a harlot, I want to know where you are. I want to know how to find you. She says, I want you, my king, to protect my reputation. I want to be honored by you. I don't want to be left out to dry. She doesn't want to be vulnerable to accusation. What she's saying really is she she wants to be safe. She wants to have a good name. She wants to be honored. She wants to be cherished. I wonder if that feeling resonates within you. I I have no doubt that every person in here would want a spouse that protects you, that gives you feelings of safety, that removes any chance of accusation, that gives you a name that is invulnerable. That's what she's after. She's ashamed about her appearance, unworthy, feeling unworthy of being seen, and yet she's afraid of what everybody else might think of her if they see her. Now, before we get to the king's response in the next few verses, I want to make a couple of quick observations about their their back and forth, their conversation. First about the woman, and then the man's response. We can note some communication, some principles about their communication in this text that we might apply to our own lives. And so to, to the women here, especially the women, but not exclusively, Note how the bride in this text is speaking. She's speaking to her lover. She she isn't bottling it all up. She isn't ignoring the king. She doesn't have unrealistic expectations that the man would just magically know how to read her mind and should know how he's feeling. That happens sometimes in marriage. Women tend to be very intuitive and, and more empathetic They're better at reading cues and body language and tone, and they can intuit from those things the emotional state of people around them. And sometimes women can expect their husbands to be able to operate in the same way. They get frustrated when their husbands can't do that or don't do that. They're not intuiting from nonverbal cues what's going on in her heart, and so the husband therefore must be guilty. To put it in modern language, he's not picking up what I'm putting down, so the problem is with him. Ladies, you're not married to the king in this story. Most men are pretty thick. And so you would do your husband a service and you would do yourself and your marriage a service if you would be willing to speak. Like the woman does in this text. And notice... She doesn't just speak about any... She's not talking about the weather. 
She's talking about things that matter. She's speaking, actually, with vulnerability. She's talking sincerely about fears, about things that, that are concerning to her, about her feelings, what makes her feel the way that she does and why she feels that way. And then she asks her husband for help and direction. You see, men long to be helpers and fixers. And so to invite them into your heart and ask them to be part of the solution can be a blessing for both of you. Many marriages are weak and they suffer because one party or the other is unwilling to speak about the real issues. They, they clam up or they blame the other person for things not getting better. And so don't, don't fall into that trap. Now, I won't, I won't linger here, but it's worth noting too that the same principles of speaking and speaking with vulnerability are not unrelated to other areas in life outside of marriage. For example, church Membership. We are covenanted together as believers in the local church, and there should be some measure, some willingness of being able to speak about things that are real, that we're fearful of, that we need help with, that we might feel ashamed about. You see, it does nobody any good to show up Sunday after Sunday after Sunday with a veneer of happiness and holiness painted over souls that are cowering in fear and shame. The gospel can speak to those issues. Let your brothers and sisters speak the gospel to you in love. And so for your homework, I challenge you to take some of these principles of communication and see how they might apply to relationships outside of your marriage. Now, men, our turn. I'm, I'm generalizing here, but statistically, men tend to be much poorer at communication than women. And so I want us men to be taught from this text as well. We noted that the woman was speaking in the text and she was speaking about real things, things that made her feel strongly and feel vulnerable, but I want us to note something significant. Don't, don't take from what I'm saying that it's the woman's job to bring all the problems out because the man has done something first. I want us to note that before the woman is even speaking about these things, she was willing to speak because the king had already created an environment where she felt loved and safe. She was only willing to speak in such a way because the king had already created an environment where she felt loved. She, she praised him and his love in verse 4. And so, yes, you might want your woman to open up and talk to you, but she's not going to want to do that if she doesn't feel loved and safe. So we should strive to create an atmosphere in the home and in the relationship where she would feel safe enough to admit her weaknesses, where she feels ashamed, where she feels afraid and fearful, and she'll never be willing to do that if, if we've created a temperature in the home of hostility. The same principle applies to every relationship, in fact. You'll never have a depth of communion and relationship with your children, with your friends, with fellow church members, if you created a temperature in the relationship, an atmosphere that doesn't feel loving, that feels unsafe, where they have to be self-protective. For example, some people use humor poorly, and they... They default to shame-based 
humor. They think it's funny to pick at other people and to make little jabs in order to get cheap laughs. And that kind of person can struggle to experience deep and meaningful fellowship because their humor makes everyone around them feel unloved and unsafe. They have to be self-protective. They're not going to be real with you because they're afraid they're going to get your barbs. Some marriages are characterized by coldness. They, this one spouse feels aloof and uninvolved, uninterested. And so this kind of relationship rarely results in any meaningful communication. An atmosphere of love and safety needs to be protected. It needs to be cultivated. It, it won't happen without intentionality and effort. Now let's, let's look back at the text and make a couple of observations about the king's response to the woman. The king's response in verse 8. And the first thing we might observe, and forgive me for stating the obvious, but that the king was listening. The king was listening to his wife, to his, well, to his betrothed. Good communication does not begin when you open your mouth. It first begins with your ears and your eyes. The king has listened to the concerns of his woman. And we can know that he was listening because he addressed both of her concerns. Regarding her first concern, remember she, was, she felt unlovely, she felt ashamed, don't look at me, I'm dark. Verse 8, if you don't know, oh most beautiful among women... He says, you're the most beautiful woman in the world. You forget all this stuff about you thinking you're too dark. I love you and my eyes are fixed only on you. Don't feel ashamed about how you look. I love you as you are. Indeed, verse 9, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, men, if your wife comes up and asks you how I look in this dress, I wouldn't start with you look like a horse. But Pharaoh's horses in Solomon's time were world-renowned for being the most beautiful. And so he's saying to her, you are of the finest quality. Your loveliness is unmatched. You have no peer in terms of beauty. So he addresses her concerns about her appearance, but he doesn't only do that. He also addresses her concerns about her appearance in the eyes of the community. She wanted to see him, but she didn't want to do it in a way that made her feel less than reputable. And so what does he do? He tells her in verse 8 where to go. If you don't know, O oh most beautiful among women, follow the tracks of the flock. Pasture your young goats there beside the shepherd's tents. And so he tells her where to find him. He gives her direction. And notice the order there. He, he listens he reassures her, and then he gives her direction. He doesn't jump right to fixing the problem, telling her where to go. He makes sure that he's heard her, heard her concerns, reassures her and her feelings, and then gives her the information she needs. He's a model for how we ought to be in our communication. He's, he's laid the groundwork that would promote and foster good communication by producing a loving environment. 
He's listened to her concerns. He's reassured her. He's addressed the concerns. But like I said earlier, this poetry isn't merely a manual on how to do marriage well. It describes for us in romantic language what true love ought to look like. And I think we would be fools if we didn't see this passage pointing us to the great bridegroom himself. But for example, the bride begins the text by lamenting her appearance. I am dark. She feels ashamed. Now she knows this isn't the whole truth. Look at verse 5. I am, I am very dark but lovely. But she can't get past her appearance. She comes right back to it. Verse 6. Do not gaze at me. I am dark. Don't even, don't even look at me. We've all felt that kind of shame. Shame was the first thing that Adam and Eve felt when they ate the fruit in the garden. Their eyes were open. They saw their nakedness and they felt ashamed. They tried to cover it up with fig leaves. Those didn't work. So they tried to go and hide in the bushes. And we sin. We we do the same kind of thing. We, we do something. We know it's shameful. We know it was wrong. We try and cover it up. Maybe we try to atone for our sins quietly. I, I screwed up over here, so I'm going to work extra hard over here and try and be holy and balance it out. Or maybe like Adam, we feel ashamed, but we, we want to shift it off of us. It's not mine. I don't want it. It's that, it's that woman you gave me, God. It was her fault. I wasn't going to eat the fruit. It was her idea. She did it first. I know I should have been better. I shouldn't have yelled like I did. I, I know I should treat her better, but, but she's not treating me right either. I know I shouldn't have said that, but, but she started it. Or maybe instead of blame shifting, you take your feelings of shame and you just pull back. You, you're like Adam in the bushes. You pull back from your spouse. You withdraw. Or you pull back from your friend. You pull back from church. Maybe you're even pulling back from God, trying to run from Him. You're like Jonah. Maybe that's where you are right now. You're hiding in the bushes, feeling ashamed, hoping nobody will ever see you, especially not God. You hear God's voice calling out to you, but you're ashamed and you're afraid. So I would tell you, don't listen to the lies of Satan that would have you believe that you are dark and you are permanently so. Satan wants you to know that you're guilty. He's the great accuser. He wants you to be ashamed of that sin. But he doesn't want you to know there's a way to get rid of that shame and to have hope. And that hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ came. He was the faithful Adam, the faithful bridegroom. He perfectly fulfilled every stroke of the law, never once sinning. And therefore, he is the only person to ever merit a life with no feelings of shame. Nothing about his life was dark or shameful. In addition to that, he went to the cross. That means he died. He died a death he didn't earn. He did it in the place of his bride, even though his bride was unlovely and shameful. 
She didn't keep her own garden. She played the harlot. She was not pure. And Jesus knew every bit of it, and he died for her. He willingly went to death in order to get her, to wash her. He despised the shame, the New Testament says. He joyfully went to redeem her and take her punishment upon himself so that he could take her sin, her shame, and put it away and that we could have his shameless life. And so that means for all of you who are trusting in Christ, regardless of whatever sin you have committed, how shameful you feel, how unkept your vineyard has been, Christ sees you, he knows it all, and he doesn't see you as dark and unlovely. He says to his bride, O most beautiful among women, you are the apple of my eye. You're the most beautiful thing on the planet, and I have eyes for no other. You may want Christ to shift his gaze from from your shame, but Christ sees every bit of your sin, and he's not repulsed by it. He loves you. He loves every bit of you. And there's no part of your past that could ever make you unlovely to him. You can't surprise him. And no darkness can overcome him. John the Baptist says in John 3, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, and Christ is the bridegroom, and he will surely have his bride. No fig leaves, no accusations, no guilty conscience, no slander from Satan. None of that's going to stand in the bridegroom's way. Doesn't that make you rejoice? That's that's good news. I hope you remember this passage and the sweetness of it the next time you feel your conscience defiled. When you feel dirty and sinful, remember these words, O most beautiful among women. That's how the bridegroom sees his bride. But what what if I don't know this king? What if Christ is far from me? Or what if I know Christ, but I feel very distant from him? What if you're like the woman here who's asking, where where can I find you? Tell me, you who my soul loves, where you pasture your flock. And what does the king say? He says, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow the tracks of your flock and pasture your young goats. Follow the tracks of the flock. He's saying follow the old paths. Follow the well-worn trails that the shepherd has taken again and again and again. If you want to find the king shepherd, go where he goes. Be where he travels. Be where he is. He's He's telling you to avail yourself of the blessings he's given to you. Listen to his word. To the preaching of his word, sing with the saints, pray with God's people. God has promised to feed his people and to be in a special way in the people of God, in the new temple. That's where you'll find your shepherd king. That's where you'll be able to pasture your young goats. It's where you'll be able to find rest beside the shepherd's tents. He's not far from you. He's near and he's ready to receive you. Indeed, eager to receive you. He delights in his beloved. She's like the loveliest of Pharaoh's horses, adorned with ornaments and fine jewels. Don't run from him. Follow the old paths of the word and of prayer, and you will find the shepherd king. Indeed, there is another of the old path that we have before us this morning in the table. 
bride of Christ has been encouraged for 2,000 years by the body and blood of Christ being pictured in the table before us. Christ's body was broken, his blood was shed so that the bride might be washed, that her conscience may be made clean, that our souls might be redeemed from bondage to sin and death, that we might be made lovely. So if you're trusting in Christ as your shepherd king, devoted to the old paths of his word, and to fellowship with the saints, to the breaking of bread at the table, and to prayer, then we invite you to join us at the table. If you haven't yet trusted in Christ, or if you're out of fellowship with, the, with his church, then let the plates pass. First, trust in Christ and be reconciled to him. Be baptized and join a local church. Then you'll be free to join us at the table. Let me pray, and then our table servants will come. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ who was sent so that his bride may be redeemed and washed. Lord, we pray that your word would be planted deep within our hearts, that you would build up your church, that you would make us holy. Through your word proclaimed, your word read, and now your word pictured at the table. Do this for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.